0: Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 28th of March 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to have David Scott bringing us
1: Northern Exposure. Northern
0: Exposure. Thanks for that, Mike. I needed a bit of help there. Northern Exposure from north of the border.
1: Uh, Well, look, we're just going to kick off with uh, Ben Wallace uh, because this uh, news came out over the weekend. Uh, YouTube has removed the account which published what uh, Yahoo News here uh, calls hoaxes of ministers over Russia links. Um, And so, well, the British government has managed to get that taken down. Brian, um, just was wondering what you thought of that little segment from friday's news program
0: well i i watched it i actually watched it twice mike because i watched it i was so stunned at the incompetence of this man but what he gave away Um, just quite extraordinary. So not a secure line. He's talking to somebody doesn't really know who it is. So this is taken down, not because it was a scam, but because of the damage that Ben Wallace has done to to the security of the country. And in my opinion, listening to it, he has put um, British servicemen and women has put their lives at risk. He's it, his position's pretty untenable, it seems to me. Well, one of th- one would th- one would think so, but of course, if he's part of the cabal with Boris Johnson and the agenda is to, of course, oust Putin, they're going to stick together. They have to stick together because if they break ranks, the whole pack of cards starts to come down.
1: Uh, well, on Friday, Patrick was talking about the negotiations between uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia and suggesting that. Uh, uh, Turkey was going to be taking a much larger role. Well, indeed, TASS is reporting this over the weekend. Putin, Erdogan agree to organize next Ukraine-Russia meeting uh, in Istanbul. So uh, Putin and Erdogan have made that agreement. During the call, the presidents discussed the latest developments in the Russian-Ukrainian war uh, and the negotiation process. Uh, Erdogan and Putin agreed to organize the next meeting uh, in Istanbul. Uh, And uh, Erdogan stressed the necessity of uh, reaching truce and peace between Russia and Ukraine as soon as possible uh, and of proving the humanitarian situation in the region. Uh, And in the meantime, uh, there were various online negotiations continuing to take place. Uh, But then, of course, uh, at about the same time, uh, President Biden was in Poland. Uh, He was meeting the Polish foreign minister and also the defense minister of Ukraine. That's the defense minister that uh, Ben Wallace says he's texting on a daily basis, of course. Um, so Biden was very busy. Uh, and uh, so he held meetings with various Polish officials, including Duda uh, and uh, the Kiev regime's foreign and defense ministers, as various uh, media has said. Um, and well, of course, while he was there, he went a bit off script, Brian, and uh, of course, it's been heavily reported over the weekend. Uh, that uh, Biden stating that Putin could not remain in power. uh, And well, in fact, what he said was, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Um, So uh, many people assumed that uh, what Biden was talking about was regime change, which of course is what he was talking about. But the White House uh, panicked about that and decided to... um, uh try to walk it walk back so he was saying that uh, the white house said that the president's point was that putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbors or the region which was completely not what he and, said
0: and it's up to the russian people to get rid of him yeah so they did a fantastic job of walking backwards at a well they, they tried to knots.
1: they tried but i just wanted to put this on screen because this is wall street journal and an opinion the piece that they published on friday So this is before uh, biden said what he said And the headline is the president should avoid public speaking. Um, So what are they saying? Uh, Yes, it's important for us all to be able to hear from our elected officials and to assess the content of the remarks as well as the skill and conviction uh, with which they uh, advocate their policies. Uh, But this particular elected official does not appear to be up to the task. Uh, While we consider the implications, Mr. Biden should try to say as little as possible in public during an international crisis. Uh, and he went on to uh, give an example of uh, Biden's remarks, because last Thursday, uh, he said that uh, if Putin were to use chemical weapons, that the United States would respond in kind, which everybody assumed uh, assumed meant they would also use chemical weapons. But of course, the United States has always taken the position that chemical weapons are absolutely uh, not to be used under any circumstances. So again, he was uh, putting his foot well and truly in his mouth Uh, David, very briefly, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, that's the Wall Street Journal officially stating that Biden is unfit for his job. He's unfit for post. uh, And that's quite something from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, And in addition to calling for regime change, um, it was striking how often uh, Biden in that speech referred to God, a deity I believe he does not have any allegiance to or belief in, Uh, despite being brought up in the Roman Catholic faith. Um, And uh, I wondered whether that was a response to Putin talking about Christianity as a justification for his actions.
1: Okay, well, let's see what uh, the Russian position has been on all this. uh, Here's Sergei Lavrov once again. uh, And he's really suggesting that uh, the United States, in fact, is and, and NATO and the EU and the UK are, in fact, at war with Russia. Uh, Today, we've been uh, declared, we have declared a real hybrid war a total war. Uh, Total war was used by as a term was used by Hitler's Germany, he said. Uh, And it's now being voiced by many European politicians when they talk about what they want to do with the Russian Federation. Uh, The goals are not hidden. Uh, They declared them publicly to destroy, break, exterminate, strangle the Russian economy, and Russia as a whole. Uh, All throughout these years, when the Ukrainian leadership evaded its obligations under the Minsk Accords, nationalists were openly wiping out civilian facilities, schools, hospitals. It was well known, and all facts were regularly reported by our mass media, but were swept under the rug by the Western media. It included the slaughter of civilians, and you may all know uh, well that the death toll among the population exceeded uh, 10,000. I think the latest number I've seen is 14,000. Uh, No one in the West cared about all the inhumane economic, trade, transportation, or food blockade of the self proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Uh, And Maria Zakharova, then the uh, Russian foreign affairs spokeswoman, said uh, NATO continues, sorry, NATO states continue to flood Ukraine with weapons, which not only prolongs hostilities, but is also fraught with unpredictable consequences. Their actions create a terrorist threat for Europe and the world. And once again, David, I find it hard to. Find any reason to criticise any of those comments?
2: No, they're spot on. I mean, the the allegation that that there was um, your know, shelling of civilians, ma- massive numbers of sh- civilian deaths um, in the Donetsk region, and no one in the West cared is absolutely accurate. No one cared. BBC didn't care. No one covered it. And um, she's also right about the terrorist threat. It's an awful lot of uh, Uh, surface-to-air missiles floating around in uh, dubious hands now.
1: Indeed.
0: Yeah, the situation's uh, very dangerous, and of course the West, BBC included, has helped stoke stoke up events. Um, Let's have a look at the BioLab comments, and uh, I was fascinated to see the Daily Mail Uh, change its spots. So we can bring this one up on the screen. Uh, Here we've got uh, Russia ramps up their wild propaganda. Well, of course, this is a big headline. So let's blow it up a bit. Russia ramps up their wild propaganda campaign by claiming Hunter Biden is secretly funding bioweapons labs in Ukraine and bankrolling anthrax production. Um, so that was a couple of days ago. My goodness, how things changed. Because here's the uh, latest headline exclusive Hunter Biden did help secure millions in funding for US contractor in Ukraine, specializing in deadly pathogen res- uh, research. Laptop emails reveal raising more questions about the disgraced son of the then vice president. So, my two days between these headlines. Uh, what's interesting is the one on the left, which is, of course, the full the false media, the fake news. We've got a team of journalists working on that. Well, two of them, to be precise, but one of them's the U.S. side. Um, but the whole thing looks like a construct. Uh, whereas the one on the right, we've got a single journalist coming in. And uh, what have they now started to talk about? What the evidence shows, but in two days. But what's remarkable about this, of course, is that if we look at other news report, well, Yahoo News here covering Insider, Fox News and far-right conspiracists push Russia's propaganda about US biolabs in Ukraine into the mainstream. So as far as I can see, the Daily Mail's now been declared a far-right conspiracy media outlet by the insider, and that's pushed by Yahoo News. Um, So David, uh, I'm almost speechless these days of what we're seeing in the Western media, the UK and the US media in particular, Uh, but the Daily Mail doesn't really know what's happening around it. It just flip-flops from one side to the other um, as, as as the day arrives.
2: Yes, and and this is another one in this long line of it's all Russian disinformation. The Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. We covered this a, a, a week or two ago. The White House press spokesman confirmed that this was Russian disinformation, and there wasn't a word of truth in it. And now it's all true. Um, so we we simply can't believe what the, what the. Uh, what they come out with. Now, the Daily Mail, who are paid to believe and paid to repeat what the official state story is, obviously are in a difficult position because the story is changing so quickly.
3: Yeah,
0: thank thank you for that. Well, let's just remind ourselves how the Russians talked about this story uh, fairly recently. So we're going to bring Zakharova back on screen and just hear a little bit of what she said was going on.
4: Мы здесь, ну я сегодня уже немало на эту тему предоставила материалы, могу сказать, что 11 марта депутаты Госдумы Федерального собрания Российской Федерации направили обращение к, ООН, к парламентской ассамблее ОБСЕ с призывом расследовать деятельность биологических лабораторий на Украине. По нашей информации формирование соответствующей парламентской экспертной группы находится в проработке. Мы надеемся, что вот эта вот русофобия которая сейчас захлестнула многие международные площадки, она все-таки не станет поводом для того, чтобы не увидеть реальные угрозы, а бесконтрольные биолаборатории или биолаборатории, которые находятся на территории страны, которая практически много лет не управляется через демократические Процедуры своими гражданами, а управляется извне оборонным ведомством США, это действительно угроза странам, которые непосредственно находятся в близости, близости не только от Украины. Речь идет ведь не только о биолабораториях на Украине. Картина шире. Эти американские биолаборатории находятся и в других странах, о чем мы неоднократно говорили. Средняя Азия, Грузия и так далее. Но в данном случае здесь усугубляется ситуация тем, что много лет на территории Украины не существовало власти, демократической власти, а было внешнее управление со стороны целого ряда государств, прежде всего США, НАТО и так далее. И эти лаборатории работали непосредственно в увязке с Пентагоном.
0: So for those of you who uh, are just listening in, what she was basically covering was that there were no there were no external checks on the laboratories inside Ukraine. Uh, She said they were not under any form of democratic control. Uh, Ultimately, it was the Pentagon, it was the US and NATO that was controlling these labs. And she also said the situation's got out of control because it's not only the labs in Ukraine, it's also labs in Central Asia and Georgia. So all of these are factual statements about the incident going on here. And and Russia is faced with this right on their border. It's being stoked up by the US in particular. It's being controlled by the Pentagon. But as she said, this, this doesn't even stop there. Mm. There's a spread of these labs. Now, what's interesting is to start to get to the detail around this, it's no point going to the BBC because they're simply not gonna cover this. Uh, you've got to go to other channels. So let's have a look at what uh, just an Indian channel is, is doing to try and research what's
5: going on. Ms. Parthma, what are the biolabs? There are 16 of them. 16 of them yeah, so they absolutely. on America, they uh, on just, Ukrainian soil am I correct?
3: Correct just as uh, labs around what India what do they conduct? conduct research for public health purposes they conduct public
6: health research similar to labs all around the world that do public health research. Now that's very
5: generic. Can they you be su- more specific than pathogen. that what, yeah, what do they study?
2: Absolutely. Uh, they study influenzas and other pathogens that have the risk of affecting
3: humans and animals and livestock and agriculture. They essentially serve as an
2: early warning system uh, and does for this detecting study, disease outbreaks. Does this,
5: does this study involve developing pathogens as well? No. Then how, how do you These know what pathogens health. there are? And why is there such panic? What are the pathogens which which, as it has been said out here, that if these pathogens, if these specific pathogens get away, then they can be very dangerous, which means inside those bio labs in Ukraine, there are some dangerous pathogens. And all of this is happening under the DTRA, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, right? And uh, the DTRA actually got millions for low visibility chemical and biological search that would meet quote-unquote specific combatant command requirements which means they were being used for a military purpose which means therefore and I am I am quoting information that has come from Pentagon that means millions have gone into the development of low visibility chemical and biological research that will meet specific combatant command requirements which means they are being used for the US military.
6: There's work that's occurring for defensive
2: purposes as well as public health purposes. The US Department of Defense has more than a hundred
3: years No, but year they're being used for military purposes. See diseases.
5: that is very different. Uh Ms. Parthmore, Ms. I think I think you need to explain this because you just tried to tell me some time back, in fact about I'm a minute back that this it. was for public health, whereas I have come to you and I have I have just confronted you and said that there has been increased funding for the Nimble Elder program of the Defense Threat Research Agency which is driven by quote-unquote classified Department of Defence guidance. And this is aimed with, uh, with low visibility, low visibility, which means the world should not know, chemical and biological research for military purposes. So
0: I'm, I'm going to say to you, David, this is the type of questioning which the BBC should be carrying out for officials they should be put under the spotlight. The questions need to be asked. This man is doing the job which nearly £6 billion worth of BBC can't or won't do.
2: This is true. Um, the BBC, the Western media have uh, once again failed in the roles of the estate.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So just to add, add to this, if, if questioning started in India, let's just have a look at uh, what the Chinese have uh, had to say. This is their foreign ministry spokesman, Zhao Jan. And uh, I've taken some excerpts from his uh, little talk so that we can see things a bit more clearly. But these are the key statements. Lately, US biological labs in Ukraine have indeed attracted much attention. According to reports, a large quantity of dangerous viruses are stored in these facilities. Russia has found during its military operations that the US uses these facilities to conduct biomilitary military plans. According to data released by the US, it has 26 labs and other related facilities in Ukraine over which the US Department of Defense has absolute control. All dangerous pathogens in Ukraine must be stored in these labs and all research activities are led by the US side. Without U.S. approval, no information shall be released to the public. I would also like to stress that the biological military activities of the U.S. and Ukraine are merely the tip of the iceberg. Using such pretexts as, uh, pretext as cooperating to reduce biological safety risks and strengthening global public health, the U.S. has 336 biological labs in 30 countries under its control. 336, you heard me right. It also conducted many biological military activities in the Fort Dietrichs base at home. What is the true intention of the US? What has it done specifically? The international community has long held doubts. However, the US has kept stonewalling, even dismissing the international community's doubts as, quote, spreading disinformation. Uh, Besides, the U.S. has been standing alone in obstructing the establishment of a biological weapons convention verification uh, mechanism and refusing verification of its biological facilities at home and abroad for the past two decades. Again, we can't fault this, uh, Mike. No. So we've got nation states now questioning absolutely what's been going on around these labs in Ukraine. BBC virtually silent and uh, the Daily Mail, as we've shown, confused. So against the measured statements there from the Russians themselves, the Indians and the Chinese, uh, let's just bring this little bit of video clip of uh, Boris Johnson um, put alongside Putin. It's an interesting comparison. It's taken another Indian station to actually deal with this in a proper, uh, proper way. Let's have a look
5: the case of Russia using chemical weapons in Syria remains unresolved but both Washington and London have raised the matter at a Security Council meeting on the issue the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said the allegations by the Kremlin are straight out of the Russian playbook
1: I'll, I'll make you one other prediction by the way which is that the stuff that you're hearing about uh, chemical weapons this is straight out of their playbook they start saying that uh, there are chemical weapons uh, that uh, have been stored by uh, their opponents or by the Americans, and so when they themselves deploy uh, chemical weapons, as I as I fear they, they may, they have a, a, a sort of a masquerovka, a, a, a fake story ready to go. And you've used. seen it in Syria. Uh, you, you you saw it in even in the UK.
5: Russia has alleged that the US was pouring millions of dollars to fund biolabs in Ukraine at least 30 of them in order to create bioweapons. The defense ministry in fact says that the US funded biolabs which were researching how to spread deadly pathogens.
6: интерес вызвала детальная информация о реализации США на территории Украины
0: so this is this is pretty clear when when we've got comment from nation states that are measured, well researched, and we compare that with Boris Johnson standing there. I don't know how we describe this man, but he doesn't look like a statesman, does he? When you see him directly compared to Putin.
1: But what was very interesting there is that that little clip uh, of him describing Russia's playbook. These are exactly the words that uh, Jens Stoltenberg was using at the NATO conference uh, on Friday. So so, you know, the clearly, again, the rapid response mechanism at work there, because it's exactly the same script, exactly the same words coming out of the mouth.
0: Which is exactly what the Russians are saying, that there is now a gang of uh, individuals lined up against Russia who will say whatever they need in order to drive that regime change. David, you've got a little clip here of uh, Trump, which you were interested in, because Trump was also some time ago commenting on the uh, the situation with Hunter Biden. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit more? Y- yes.
2: Just before we get to that, the, the the problem that Boris has is although he's got complete consistency at any moment in time across the West, and the story is the same from him and Stoltenberg and all the rest of it, the the story keeps changing with time. Um, a, a wag on Twitter summarised it as follows: Day one, there are no Nazis and no bio labs. Day five, okay. Maybe there's a few Nazis. Day 10, okay, yeah, there are a ton of Nazis, but they're all good Nazis. There's still no biolabs. Bio Day 15, no, okay, maybe there are a few harmless biolabs. Day 20, why do you have a problem with Nazi biolabs? So th- this, is, this is how the, West, the West's narrative has been changing, because it started off with something that's not true and then been ultimately exposed and had to concoct a new story, a new narrative. Now it's all—it's still all Russian disinformation. It's just a Russian plot that they're going to do the things which they've just caught America doing. Um, it's very unconvincing. Uh, moving on to uh, Trump here. This is f- back from the election. This is talking about Hunter Biden's uh, laptop and all the information contained therein of criminality. And... Uh, the fact that the media wouldn't report it then, and the media were covering it up. Um, and Trump called it, and of course, he was ignored by the mainstream.
6: And you think it's the biggest issue to campaign
2: on? I think it's, this, I
3: think it's one of the biggest scandals I've ever seen, and you don't cover it.
6: Because you want to
3: talk about...
6: Well, because it can't be verified. You want I'm, to talk I'm about
3: insignificant you. things. I'm
6: telling you... Of
3: course it can be verified. Excuse we, me, we they found the laptop. laptop. Leslie, Leslie. Can't be what can't be verified? The laptop. Why do you say that? Because Even the family the hasn't. Microphone. The family on the laptop, he's gone into hiding. For five days, he's gone into hiding. He's preparing for your debate. Oh, it's taken him five days to prepare? I doubt it. I doubt it. Okay.
0: Well, it's so simple, isn't it? When we put these things hindsight, of course, is a wonderful thing, but uh, very, very clear. Um, The US media, the UK media, the Western media does not want to tell the truth. If it doesn't fit the political narrative, they do not want to tell the truth. So this is propaganda. This is raw propaganda coming out of the West.
1: It is. Um, Well, David, I was interested in this headline in RT, Uh, Poland should claim Russian region, General says. Um, And uh, so basically, uh, Warsaw uh, should uh, seek to claim the Kaliningrad uh, region from Russia, according to a Polish general. Uh, The region has been under Russian occupation since 1945. Uh, And that sort of struck me because, of course, there were lots of arguments about territorial rights just leading up to the Second World War.
2: Yes, there's a lot of them involving Poland. Um, that, that seems, that's, a, that's an astonishing headline, uh, an astonishing <laughs> position for anyone in the Polish military to take to be promoting, let's face it, pr- prompting World War III in that manner. The Russians are not going to take the loss of the main Baltic ice-free port kind of quietly.
1: Uh, no, indeed. Uh, but don't worry, here we are. Uh, we've got the RAF riding to the rescue uh, to, uh, well, they're deploying four uh, Typhoon jets uh, from three fighter squadron, uh, normally based at RAF Coningsby. Uh, they're going to take or they're going to conduct the NATO air policing mission um, in, from an air base in the Romanian Black Sea coast or on the Romanian Black Sea coast. Uh, the mission is supported by 150 RAF personnel based at RAF Wittering. Uh, and forms, uh, sorry, who formed the headquarters of an expeditionary air wing. Uh, The personnel recently undertook training at RAF Leeming's operational training center. So that's good. Um, So their deployment to Romania has been supported by personnel from number one, Expeditionary Logistics Squadron and number two, Mechanical Transport Squadron. Uh, And uh, this is all part of the uh, NATO air policing mission. It's the fourth, sorry, Operation uh, Biloxi. Uh, I'm quite sure the wrong vowel has been used there, but anyway. Uh, it's the fourth time since two thousand and seventeen that the RAF has conducted it, and the NATO mission enhances the national air policing uh, conducted by the Romanian Air Force, and we'll see the RAF Typhoons mirror the Quick Reaction Alert mission that is conducted routinely in the UK. That's exciting.
0: What it's exciting. This is this is another activity which is designed to put pressure on Russia. So, what? How will the Russians see this? They will see this as. As an escalation in the use of military force by the West.
1: Um, Yes, indeed. Well, another escalation here because uh, here is uh, uh, well the headline is supporting Ukraine's journey to justice, according to the uh, UK government. And Suala Braverman, who's the Attorney General, has appointed this gent, uh, Sir Hard Morris, uh, sorry, Sir Hard Morrison QC KCMG, as an independent advisor to the Ukrainian uh, Prosecutor General. Uh, and he will provide independent and expert legal advice to the Ukrainian ex, uh, prosecutor general in relation to the investigation and prosecution of war crimes committed by Russia in Ukraine. Uh, and he will start that work immediately. Uh, he has apparently got extensive judicial career in the UK and internationally, including serving as a judge at the International Criminal Tribunal for the formal, former Yugoslavia uh, and at the International Criminal Court for over 12 years. Um, and, uh, uh, so there you go. We are really pushing forward with this uh, notion of war crimes, but not for Tony Blair, apparently. Um, and uh, well, let's uh, quickly move on to this. Uh, this is the Daily Saba. And uh, they are reporting that uh, Turkey has defused a stray naval mine or several stray naval mines in the Bosporus uh, after Black Sea warnings. Um, so uh, mines drifting uh, into the Bosporus, uh, just as the Russians warned that they would. Uh, So they have defused a stray naval mine floating uh, in that area on Saturday. And of course, this is a major trade uh, civilian shipping route. uh, And so that makes it pretty dangerous. So these mines have broken loose from uh, ports on the coastline of Ukraine. Um, But it gets better because uh, Stars and Stripes is very, very excited. Uh, Russia's failures in Ukraine imbue Pentagon with newfound uh, confidence. Uh, so the Pentagon beginning to believe its own
0: propaganda. Uh, I'm yeah. glad you added that, Mike, because this is the key thing. This is the American military believing their propaganda or, or believing what's in the film industry. If it's Top Gun, it becomes reality. And this mirrors the American uh, Air Force effectively. This yeah. is the way it works.
1: Yes. So uh, let me put it this way. One senior Pentagon official is uh, quoted. Uh, Who would you switch places with? Seriously, who would you switch places with? Uh, One could imagine that Hitler might uh, have felt the same way one month after the start of Operation Barbarossa is uh, how one person uh, referred to this report. Um, So uh, maybe they're falling into a a trap. Well, well, a trap uh, of their own making, making, precisely. Uh, And here we go. The Telegraph uh, now promoting the use of nuclear weapons. So Joe Joe Biden ready to use nuclear weapons first in extreme circumstances. Uh, this was from Friday afternoon, I think, later on. Um, so uh, US President abandons plans to water down policy to retaliation only uh, amid fears Vladimir Putin may deploy weapons of mass destruction. We've heard the weapons of mass destruction rhetoric before, I believe. Um, so anyway, this is related to the so-called nuclear posture review. Um, and Biden, uh, when he was vice president in 2017, said uh, the sole purpose of our nuclear arsenal is to deter and if necessary, retaliate for a nuclear attack against the United States and its allies. Um, And uh, so in the current situation, it's very challenging to make the case for sole purposes. The optics are extremely bad when Russia is being as threatening as it is. Uh, You don't want to look weak. uh, And that's the Telegraph reporting an arms control expert uh, and unnamed, of course. Uh, It is on the president's desk awaiting the decision. Then Ukraine happened. Pre Ukraine, there was a chance the president would have gone ahead uh, and made a sole purpose declaration. He wanted to do that, but he didn't have a lot of support in the Pentagon. Uh, And so, anyway, they're talking about this being watered down to the point of uh, uh, the potential that uh, it would be that nuclear weapons would be used as a a first strike weapon in extreme circumstances. Again, we're moving in the wrong direction.
0: Yeah, completely in the wrong direction. So little being done to play down the conflict in uh, Ukraine and settle it down and look for a peaceful solution. Everything is rhetoric for war and ramping it up.
1: Um, So where does that take us? Mick Wallace, well, Mick Wallace has featured on the uh, UK column before. He's an Irish uh, former TD, so a former uh, member of the Irish parliament. Uh, He's currently a member for the European Parliament, uh, and he was drawing parallels uh, as we were last week uh, with respect to Yemen. So let's just have a listen to this.
3: Thanks very much, President. Under the cover of UN Resolution 2216, the US and Saudi gave themselves permission to use violence in Yemen in an effort to reinstate the corrupt and incompetent President Hadi who had been rejected by the people of Yemen. For the last seven years, US and British made planes have been dropping bombs on the poorest country in the Middle East, while well-paid public relations firms justify what's called a war crime elsewhere. The Western-backed Saudi-UAE coalition targets everything from transport infrastructure, bridges, roads, ports, to food processing plants, farmlands, food stores, markets and water wells. The resulting famine has almost been kept out of the media. Issa Blumey, one of the few journalists who has reported on the famine, argues that starvation is strategic rather than collateral. According to the UN, almost 400,000 are dead. 16 million have been pushed into severe poverty. Why? Is the European Union silent about the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet? Are these people not worthy of our compassion?
1: And David, I would ask the same question of the UK government and the UK media, um, because, uh, as we said last week, this is the Forgotten War. It's been the Forgotten War for many, many years, uh, and it's time it wasn't forgotten.
2: Yes, it's very strange, isn't it? Because. <clears throat> Why is it forgotten? It's forgotten because Saudi oil money is that the reason? Um, but we buy oil and gas from Russia, but we're not forgetting the war in Ukraine. So why does, why does Saudi oil buy looking the other way? Russian oil gas?' think
1: I don't think it's Saudi oil. David, I think it's the fact that Saudi is one of the largest uh, purchasers of uh, the military-industrial. Uh, side from the UK. So as, 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 uh, as Mick Wallace was saying there, uh, you know, the bombs and the aircraft that are being used are manufactured in the UK and the United States. And I think that's the main reason.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds plausible. I wonder if there's even more to it.
1: Yeah. Uh. Yes. Okay. Well, we shouldn't mention Al-Yamama perhaps. But anyway, let's uh, let's move on to this. Uh, BBC very upset because Afghanistan, as it says, the headline, Afghanistan colon Taliban bars BBC TV programs from schedules. So uh, BBC TV programming has been taken off the air in Afghanistan after the Taliban ordered local channels not to broadcast content from international partners, uh, calling it a worrying development. The BBC uh, dripping in hypocrisy said it would affect more than 6 million viewers of Persian, Pashto, and uh, Uzbek language service programs. Uh, the BBC uh, Persian TV channel can still be accessed but only by 20% of Afghans who have satellite TV, radio and online services are affected. So it's okay for uh, countries to ban uh, Russian television and other media Uh, in the UK, for example, that's okay, But uh, it's very upsetting when it happens to the BBC in other countries.
0: Well, they're shocked by it. But this is this is very interesting, a very interesting development because it's showing, um, well, it's the Taliban. But we can say it's showing that in Afghanistan, they're beginning to recognize that the BBC is not necessarily their friend. And of course, when one country begins to understand this, it is going to spread. So. Uh, If I just follow up from here a few days ago, we got interested in maps and where they were coming from. This happened to be one of the ones spread by defense intelligence. Um, We were pointing out that it was a map with not a lot of detail really on it when it came to what was happening on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, but what we were more interested in was how these maps were being used by the BBC and where they were coming from. So top left, we've got the headline, Ukrainian War, Ukraine War in Maps, mm. tracking the Russian invasion. Uh, we pointed out that it was the Institute for the Study of War who was involved. And we were very interested in a name, Dr. Kimberly Kagan. Uh, we showed this link through to the American Enterprise Institute with a Frederick W. Kagan. And uh, we were quick to point out that this was a little bit of a lovey-dovey uh, relationship with the two of them married, uh, but a brothers involved, who was also part of the project for a new American century. And uh, that led us through uh, to Victorian Jane Newland, the U.S. Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, uh, who's the, the uh, married partner of Robert Keegan. And uh, of course, what was happening, we had pointed out, was that BBC's Media Action was operating as a change agent to help stir up trouble in Ukraine. And where were they getting their money from? Well, of course, it's not a charity at all. It's being funded by governments, including the UK government, uh, the US uh, government, the Canadians, and others. Please check their funding yourself. Uh, but we also pointed out the Victoria Jane Newland. Uh, has uh, got Ukrainian family members, so not a lot of independence there. Uh, But this lady, we encourage people to have a look at because uh, if you go to a simple source, it's still accurate. Wikipedia here talking about her connections through to the revolution of dignity, and the fact that she's been very keen on, quote, defensive weapon delivery into Ukraine. But of course, for the Russians, there's no such thing as defensive weapons because these are weapons being put right on the Russian borders and therefore very quickly they become offensive. Uh, She was working to plot a new unity government for Ukraine. So this ties in nicely with the actions of BBC Media Action, which is changing a government to install a a pro-NATO, pro-EU, pro-US, UK, whatever the flavour of the month is. And of course, this lady of uh, particular significance because she's also Joe Biden's choice. So again, we've got to go through to an Indian station to just have a look at a little uh, clip where she's been asked questions about Ukraine. Is she independent? I'm going to suggest. No, I don't think so.
5: Sure. as russia claims a secret bioweapons plan that u.s had in place on ukrainian soil there's been a response from the americans in fact that's the breaking news response right now
2: uh, ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which in fact we are now quite concerned russian troops russian forces may be seeking to uh gain control of so we are working with the ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh russian forces
6: should they approach i'm sure you're aware that the russian propaganda
0: Well, there's no doubt in my mind that she's not going to be independent in making those comments. Uh, So let's jump back to the uh, BBC, because a little while ago, we pointed out that the BBC had put forward five scenarios for how the war in Ukraine was going to go. And it ended by them blatantly talking about regime change. Putin was going to be ousted, And according to the BBC, if they could get enough of the BBC media into Russia, they could help uh, stir up the Russian public to do this job for them. Um, But oh dear, now the BBC's turned on uh, Joe Biden because he's been brave enough to actually say the policy out loud. And here's the BBC's headline. Um, why Biden's off-script remarks about Putin are so dangerous. So Biden, of course, is not really with it. Uh, and you've already quoted this, Mike. But I thought it just fascinating how the BBC does the dirty work from behind the scenes uh, whilst denying what it's doing. Mm. Uh, but uh, Putin said the wrong thing out front. None and the Biden. B- uh, sorry, Biden. And, uh, and uh, the BBC's attacking him. So I just encourage people to have a look at this uh, article max blumenthal here talking about reuters bbc and it's uh, getting into bbc media action with a lot of detail it's a really excellent article was back in february the 20th 2021 uh, but have a look at it and have a look at some of the documents that are actually in that article to understand how the bbc in particular is manipulating events behind the scenes
1: Yes. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, And that uh, support is very much needed. Uh, If you'd like to share our material on the various platforms, uh, we're still around in a couple of places. Uh, Do share it if you find it. Uh, And also if you would like to support us uh, via the shop, that would be much appreciated as well. So shop.ukcolumn.org for that. Now, online safety bill. Uh, is obviously uh, in parliament at the moment Um, and uh, well the question is about this issue of uh, legal but harmful content Uh, so uh, content which is legal but uh, which some people consider harmful Uh, so under the draft bill category one uh, companies uh, the largest online platforms with the widest reach including the most popular social media platforms must address content harmful to adults that falls below the threshold of a criminal offence said the UK government. Uh, and then they, uh, they went on to say that the agreed categories of legal but harmful content will be set out in secondary legislation, uh, that is in statutory instruments, uh, and, approve, and subject to approval by both houses of parliament. Uh, social media platforms will only be required to act on the priority legal harms set out in that se- secondary legislation, uh, meaning decisions on what types of content are harmful are not delegated to private companies or at the whim of internet executives. And the point that we were making uh, last week or the week before on this uh, was that okay, uh, they've taken the responsibility of that away from the social media companies into the hands of the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, But that whereas uh, the statement said subject to the approval of both houses of parliament, in most cases, statutory instruments get very little scrutiny, if any. Uh, Well, the uh, the DCMS committee, the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, uh, which is supposed to hold the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport to account, uh, released uh, a report called the draft online safety bill and the legal but harmful debate. uh, And the government has now responded to that. So there's a government response to the committee's eighth report. And that was published a couple of days ago. And it says this, we are clear that the bill must be future-proofed and that Parliament must have a role in designating future harms. The draft bill already set out that the Secretary of State will be able to designate categories of content that is harmful to adults and content that is harmful to children in secondary legislation. Um, The committee recommended that all designations of harmful content should be subject to the affirmative resolution procedure. Now, the affirmative resolution procedure is a procedure it requires the uh, positive endorsement of both Houses of Parliament. So, normally, when a statutory instrument is laid, it gets laid and nobody really looks at it. It's sort of a rubber stamping exercise, and that's parliamentary approval done. Um, so, what it goes on to say here is that normally a motion to approve a draft statutory instrument is uh, tabled and put to the House of Commons. A statutory instrument is usually agreed without a debate or a vote. Uh, but opposition members of parliament can force either if so minded. If both houses do not indicate their backing for the instrument, it cannot become law. So this affirmative uh, uh, resolution procedure, if the government goes ahead with it, uh, is a step forward. We agreed with the committee, they said, uh, and have updated the bill so the changes to the regulations to specify types of harm should be subject to the affirmative resolution procedure as well as uh, the initial regulations. Uh, So David, this is a step in the right direction, not much of one, but it is a step in the right direction. And really what this uh, says is there is an opportunity uh, for uh, the public to start lobbying their members of parliament as to what the threshold for harm should be. Um, And uh, we've got to encourage people to get involved in that discussion because otherwise, uh, this will just be a rubber stamping exercise.
2: Yes, it's a step in the right direction, but it's a very small one. Um, coming at this for, with the experience of the name-person fight, um, the idea that they can put into a statutory instrument um, a, a set of rules for what is legal but harmful that will be um, such that uh, judgment calls are not, do not need to be made by individual um, internet companies and media companies is, I think, fanciful. There will be judgments required to be made all the way along the line. It'll, everything about this will be a judgment call. Um, I suspect at one point we'll end up seeing codes of practice written to, to explain how those judgment calls uh, will, will be made, and that will become de facto legislation as well. Um, this, is a, this is a never-ending pit that we're delving into here.
1: Uh, and that's absolutely true. And, and I'm by no means suggesting that the uh, dangers in this act are, uh, <laughs> go away by this. Uh, it, they only go away when people, when the public become engaged uh, and actually start uh, uh, challenging MPs on where this is going.
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think we have to say here, David, that a lot of people say, what can we do? What can we do? And this is a simple thing to uh, apply pressure to MPs to get them to act for the constituents instead of for the for the whips and it's it's drive a wedge in get the wedge in get the pressure started get the debate started of course if we had a million people doing this we we would expect to see results so it's encouraging people to do something rather than sit and feel they can they they can't do anything
1: uh, indeed and in the meantime uh, of course Ofcom is going to be there is already effectively the uh, regulator for the internet uh, so here they are uh, and they were as we reported a couple of weeks ago uh, publishing the fact that the online safety bill had been laid before the UK parliament uh, now the question is who is going to chair Ofcom uh, during this period as it uh, develops its role as regulator of the internet and uh, the initial uh, person that was uh, chosen by the British government for this was Paul Dacre, the former uh, editor of the Daily Mail. Uh, But uh, unfortunately, he wasn't acceptable. But I wonder who he wasn't acceptable to? Well, it turns out he wasn't acceptable to the civil service. Uh, And I find this, David, a very fascinating development because uh, Paul Dacre basically was given the kibosh by the civil service over the head of notionally the most powerful man in the country, who, was, uh, who is Boris Johnson. So the question then is, who's running this country?
2: That's a question we've been asking for many years because we looked at Boris and we said, well, it doesn't look like it's him. Um, and uh, we get uh, other interesting answers um, centred around the cabinet office and uh, very well-connected um, civil servants seem to have more power than most cabinet ministers and politicians.
0: Yes. And, uh, well, surely, Mike, we've got to bring in here the, the fact that uh, uh, he was prepared to publish 11 pages exposing the political charity Common Purpose at a time when Common Purpose was a key part of the civil service. It was embedded in the civil service. Yes. So um, um, he, he he put out those 10 pages and, and now all of a sudden the civil service was saying, you're not a suitable man to uh, being controlled of the media.
1: Indeed. So yeah. look, uh, we just want to f- look at uh, Ofcom's board as a brief brief reminder very quickly, uh, because of course, if we look at the content board and these are the people that are going to be making these de- the decisions, uh, we have such massive influence in the BBC. So here's uh, Kevin Backhurst, uh, former BBC, uh, who's next. We've got uh, Maggie Cunningham, former BBC. Uh, we've got uh, Peter Harrocks, former BBC. Uh, we've got uh, Dakin Apogee, former BBC. Uh, We've got Kim uh, Schillinglaw, former BBC. We've got uh, Rachel Caldicott, former BBC. And now we have the new first choice uh, for uh, the chairman of Ofcom, and that is Michael Grade, former BBC. Um, So it's pretty clear the direction to travel here.
0: Well, the BBC is to be put in control of everything. There is to be no separate independent media. There will just be one state uh, media, and that will be the BBC. And of course, it will be the BBC with its political charity, BBC Media Action, so that the BBC can do what it what it likes in this country and overseas. Um, but the Mail is yeah. a bit upset
1: because here is uh, Carl Hennigan from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine uh, Twitter bans Oxford academic who shared his this Mail on Sunday article, uh, but allows anti-vax rants amid fears over new online safety powers. Letting tech giants censor legitimate journalism. This is a very interesting article because it's notionally uh, extremely anti the online safety bill uh, and warning about the dangers of the online safety bill. But the key is in the last few words of that headline: PARS letting tech tech censors giants." Sorry powers letting tech giants censor legitimate journalism. This is not really about Carl Hennigan and the fact that he's been uh, kicked off uh, Twitter for uh, pushing a Mail on Sunday article. It's really about making sure that uh, there's lobbying going on uh, with the government because as we've reported, the online safety bill will protect uh, the content of so-called legitimate journalism uh, and uh, while censoring the content from dissenting voices. Um, And so uh, this is uh, absolutely about the online safety bill and making sure that there's pressure kept on with respect to that aspect of things. But speaking of evidence-based medicine, David, uh, it's an illusion.
2: Yes, this is uh, an opinion piece from the BMJ on the 16th of March, the illusion of evidence-based medicine. Uh, And it starts off, evidence-based medicine has been corrupted by corporate interests, failed regulation, and commercialisation of academia, argue these authors. Um, and it continues, the advent of evidence-based medicine was a paradigm shift, intended to provide a solid scientific foundation for medicine. The validity of this new paradigm, however, depends on reliable data from clinical trials, most of which are conducted by the pharmaceutical industry and reported in the names of senior academics. The release into the public domain of previously confidential pharmaceutical industry documents has given the medical community valuable insight into the degree to which industry-sponsored clinical trials are misrepresented. And there's four references to substantiate that comment. Until this problem is corrected, evidence-based medicine will remain an illusion. So there's no such thing. In fact, it's being used to further the uh, interests of the pharmaceutical company.
1: Yes. Okay. Now you've got a a piece of video here from Steve Kirch.
2: Yeah, Steve Kirch, who's an engineer um, uh, of some note uh, and who has been uh, since the onset, well, since shortly after the onset of the COVID epidemic, when he realised things were not as they seemed. He's been one of the major um, bloggers, campaigners, researchers into the entire pandemic, uh, into the response, into vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, he's got an excellent um, uh, newsletter on these matters, and this is him giving evidence uh, in, a, in a committee in America. Um, it's, it's, it's edited down to a very short duration, but it does cover some vital points, which we've mentioned before in the column, um, about the, the, sh- the sheer scale of the loss of life due to the vaccination programme.
5: uh, Our next uh, presentation is from Mr. Steve Kirsch. Uh, He's a former Silicon Valley tech executive. Um, When the pandemic started, he created the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund to fund researchers working on repurposed drugs, including fluvacamine, which is shown to reduce death from COVID by a factor of 12. Uh, That's amazing. That study was featured on 60 Minutes. Steve also writes a popular COVID-19 newsletter, on Substack and has testified in front of the U.S. Senate regarding the pandemic response. Steve, thank you for joining us. Over to you.
6: In other words, you take the 10,000 deaths in VAERS, you multiply it by 41, you get 410,000 deaths. Now, if those people weren't killed by the vaccine, what killed them? Nobody wants to answer that question. You know, it's the same with the insurance company. You know, the insurance company executive in Indiana thought he was just talking to his peers when he mentioned that there was a 40% increase in the third quarter in deaths of people under 64. That's not supposed to happen. If you look at the insurance statistics, they're all flat. They're all, it's the same number every year. And now it just jumps 40%. How does that happen? That's a 12 sigma variation. It can't happen by chance. So it didn't happen by chance. Something caused that. Something caused this is like the greatest cause of death in human history. and Nobody knows what it is. I talked to embalmers. Embalmers are the end of the line, you know, the right before you go six feet under. I talked to embalmers. I talked to one embalmer, 93% of her cases, that's what they call the dead bodies, they call them cases. 93% of the cases had these blood clots that had never been seen before the vaccines rolled out. Now she's seen those blood clots in 93% of the people that she embalms. This is the greatest killer of mankind. This is the worst cover-up in in human history. 150,000, probably more than that, probably 400,000 Americans have been killed by the U.S. government. So he,
2: he's looking for a ballpark figure there, 150,000 to 400,000 in the United States alone. The evidence he's got, he's got the, the, the Verve's database, which has been blinking red for a year and a half, more, two years, um, and, and it's been consistently ignored. Information for, statistical information from insurance companies showing 12 standard deviation increase in, in all-cause mortality in the under 65s. That's just, that's vast and no one's asking any questions. And then all this anecdotal stuff, which we've also reported on, it's coming out of Obama's uh, funeral directors, all these strange things that are happening, strange patterns that have been observed and no one's investigating. MHRA certainly aren't investigating. No one's investigating. Um, it's people uh, like Steve who are sounding the alarm. All of the regulators, all of the governments All of the officials, all of the institutions that are there to to protect us from harm, they're all failing. Uh,
0: David, I'd like to say they're failing deliberately because as time goes on, it's clear that they're not failing by incompetence. They're failing as a result of the fact that they want to deceive the public as to what's happening. Just some good news since we put out a suggestion to our audience that they should have a look at the MHRA board meetings, which are on YouTube. Uh, Originally, the viewing figures were very, very low, perhaps 60, 80, 100 people. Uh, For January this year, they're now at 3,900 plus. And for the February 2022 board meeting, 5,519. So we've now got thousands of people starting to look into the works of the MHRA. That figure needs to be 500,000 people. So what is June Rain and Alison Cave and the colleagues in uh, MHRA? Why is it that they have not conducted any form of investigation into vaccine deaths? Have a look at their own board meetings to start to understand how cavalier these people are when it comes to people's health and the deaths of individuals.
1: Uh, and David, uh Church officials being reported to the Vatican.
2: Yes, here we've got um, being a nun doesn't, doesn't protect you. Anti-vax mother general reported to the Vatican. Um, a mother General Marilla, who runs a Tyburn convent opposite Hyde Park, uh, believes that the vaccine kills people. Well, she's right, isn't she? Because that's been confirmed by the manufacturers of the vaccines themselves. Uh, While many of the nuns at the convent have taken a vow of of silence and rarely set foot in the outside world, Marilla has taken to the streets during the anti-lockdown protests filmed by demonstrators preaching about the vaccine being extremely dangerous. Uh, She wrote, quote, Since January 21, we have been asked to pray for 84 people who have died from the COVID injections, including babies and family members of the sisters. So she's seeing, again, anecdotal evidence that something is wrong, and she's speaking out and she's been uh, told to go and see the Pope, and uh, she's in for a rebuke, I suspect.
1: Yes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on, David, down to uh, shipping in Scotland.
2: Shipbuilding, in fact. Well, shipping, kind of, yes. So this this first slide, <laughs> this is a Glen Sannox. This was um, launched in 2017, I think it was, a great fanfare by Nicola Sturgeon, and it's still being finished and it's sitting there at uh, Port Glasgow Ferguson Marine shipyard um, slowly progressing uh, we hear uh, covered as you see in scaffolding Um, so that Glen Sanox was uh, Hull 801 before it was named. Uh, The next slide is Hull 802 Uh, these uh, ships were meant to be built simultaneously but the yard actually is too small for that so they've been built one after the other. This is Hull 802 and it's um, Uh, less complete as you can see not yet launched not yet named was not always like this back in 2015 at the SMP party conference uh, this is the this little bit of video shows you the uh, ship contracts being announced
6: right now at Ferguson shipyards on the Clyde, we are signing the contract for two new ferries and they will receive that
0: award from the Scottish Government.
6: <laughs> and that will be returning commercial shipbuilding to the River Clyde. Fantastic
3: news. Well, that's a great announcement.
2: So uh, that was Derek McKay, disgraced um, former um, finance minister uh, who was uh, forced to leave politics following text he sent to a uh, teenage boy, uh, trying to start a relationship with the boy, and uh, that went down badly when the boy's mother found out about it and did the right thing, which is she went to the press, not the police. Um, now, uh, this. Delay and cost overruns and problems in ferries has been an ongoing embarrassment for the Scottish Government for some time. It has, however, come to a a bit of a head this week. So here we see the Telegraph uh, reporting Scottish Government is accused of relentless incompetence. That's a good phrase, it's very accurate. Uh, As the cost of the two new ferries hits 240 million, uh, 240 million and the rest, I would suggest. Uh, This is uh, Following a report by Audit Scotland, unveiling the report, Stephen Boyle, Auditor General for Scotland, said the failure to deliver these two ferries on time and on budget exposes a multitude of failing. A lack of transparent decision making, a lack of project oversight, no clear understanding of what significant sums of money, of public money, have achieved. And crucially, communities still don't have the lifeline ferries they were promised years ago. That is some of the issues. It's not by any means all of them. Um. If we we look at a little, uh, I've got a few extracts here from the report. Uh, So the report's called New Vessels for the Clyde and Hebrides, Arrangements to Deliver Vessels 801 and 802 by Audit Scotland and the Auditor General. Um, It gives a bit of background here. Um, It it says, uh, Seamal's fleet of ferry vessels is ageing. Prone to breakdowns and struggling to meet rising service demands on some of the main routes at peak times. Transport Scotland has recognised the need to improve uh, the vessel fleet to ensure it's fit for purpose. In 2014, Transport Scotland um, set out the case to procure two new dual fuel vessels on the Clyde and Hebrides network. One vessel was to be employed between Adrosan and Brodick, one of the busiest routes, and the other was between Uig Tarbert and Maddy. Uh, and it's explained here dual fuel vessels are vessels that can opera, operate with liquefied natural gas and marine gas oil, um, with uh, liquefied gas being a cleaner fuel to help reduce carbon emissions. So you see it's politically driven. This is not a set of decisions being made for the good of the people who need the ferries. No, this is uh, virtue signalling. And in October 2015, uh, Ferguson Marine Engineering won the contract uh, for a fixed price of $97 Uh, Completion date was um, May and July 2018. That's obviously come and gone and so has the 97 million. Uh, This next little chart here uh, shows uh, the situation as of June 2019, uh, by which 90% of the first vessel and 80% of the second vessel have been paid out. um, And the vessels were still 60 and 86 weeks respectively, away from completion and hundreds of millions of pounds away from completion. Um, And uh, the next slide uh, covers a couple of the main issues that came out of the Audit Scotland report. Um, The first one is that uh, during the contract negotiations, um, uh, Ferguson Marine confirmed they were unable to provide a full builder's refund guarantee which was a requirement of the contract. Uh, Seemal the commissioning part of the government their preference was to reject the bid and start the procurement process again Um, Transport Scotland fully praised Scottish ministers of the significant financial and procurement risks of awarding the contract to Ferguson Marine there is insufficient documentary evidence to explain why Scottish ministers accepted these risks and were content to approve the contract contract award in October 2015. And then it also points out that the that they've then loaned, the Scottish Government has then loaned the shipyard 45 million um, to help with the cash flow situation, uh, but that 45 million had uh, basically no impact on the progress of the ship.
0: David, while you're saying this, uh, it came into my mind pretty quickly when I saw the picture. This is a very tiny vessel. We're talking... At- roughly a thousand tons. This is the sort of thing that would have been churned out in a few weeks in World War II, (laughs) would have been churned out in a few months in this country uh, until the destruction of our shipbuilding industry. This is an incredible situation where where all this is going on around a few 1,000 tonne ships. A nation, Scotland, has got to this stage in its shipbuilding capacity.
2: A government has, because the w- w- d- further down the Clyde, the um, further down the Clyde, the there's, there's, there's ship's been made for the Royal Navy, actually quite efficiently and well, but this is the last commercial yard on the, on the Clyde. It was a political decision to put the work here, and it was also a political decision that affected the design of the ships and the design of the dockyards, uh, the, the harbours in which they go in. It's all political, and it's all the wrong way of going about it, but we'll come to that. Uh, this next slide very quickly shows how the delivery con- the delivery of the, the vessel slipped. Originally May twenty eighteen and July twenty eighteen, by December twenty nineteen there were being, um, there were there were two years there were still two years away. Um, in, in December twenty one, October twenty two, um, a year further on, there were still two years away. Very little progress had been made, and and in June twenty twenty one, they were saying they're going to be finished in September twenty twenty two and July. Uh, 2023, 20, so still a year or more away for the second uh, the second ship. Um, the uh, money has gone up from 97 million to 240 million, um, but it's not going to stop there. Uh, there's uh, the, the current estimate to complete the vessels is 110 to 114 million. So having paid out more than the original cost of the contract to these ships to, to, in the state you now see them in, the, the amount to then finish them is more than the original cost of the contract, again. And we now get to uh, s- s- some analysis about what's actually gone wrong here, and it's very interesting. It's in the Sunday Post. They talk to someone who actually knows about ferries. The um, expert says, the current system is dysfunctional and inefficient and needs to be utterly transformed. And he says, Scotland has 10, 10 vehicle ferry operators. Four are run by local authorities, four are commercial private operators. Uh, one's a commercial company which runs on behalf of the Scottish Government, and one is state-owned, calmac Ferries. Um, half of the fleet run by the state-owned operators, more than 25 years old. More than 1,000 ferry sailings have been delayed over the past five years because of mechanical problems. Um, and on top of this, there's the problems with the the, the new ferries being built at Ferguson Marine. Uh and they're saying it's going to be at least 300 million, which, is, which I'm sure it will be. Uh, so Peterson, the, the expert, then said uh, that the thing to notice is some of these operators provide an excellent service. Calmark's efficiency is questionable and perhaps abysmal. He said the current nationalised system is dysfunctional, ineffic- inefficient, feather-bedded and unresponsive to Islanders' requirements. Uh, he said that uh, much of the Scottish system works well and stressed that several operators provide an efficient service with no recourse to public funds. It's the subsidised ferries that are the problem. Uh, Peterson believes increased capacity for more frequent reliable services operating on the shortest feasible routes over a longer working day by simple, no-frills, cost-effective vessels, uh, for example, as they have in Norway, would uh, revolutionise connectivity. So he's saying that the the entire approach that the Scottish Government has brought to procure these ferries is wrong. They get, the ferries are too big, they're too fancy, the, the routes are too long, they're not serving the needs of the islanders. There's hundreds of millions going into harbour improvements to actually take the ferries as well, because the harbours won't, the ferries won't fit the harbours at the moment. So I, I tweeted this out, and this next, this next tweet is something that came back. All right, this, this chap, uh, Dr. Peabody said, he's 100% agree, I'm a frequent user of Western ferries unsubsidised service, it's exemplary modern vessels, frequent 6am to midnight, operates in all but the most severe storms if western ferries had to comply with Calmax's massively subsidised road equivalent tariff formula formula, they would have to increase the fares so this, this, is, the, this is the key point, the private sector when given a chance, succeeds um, the Scottish government are ideologically committed to nationalised centrally controlled, centrally planned um, uh, f- ferry services. So they're, n- they're not willing to to take the controls off and let the market provide what it does, which is a very good service when it's allowed to. It's the socialism and central controlled and totalitarian mindset that's, that's driving this. And it's that same mindset that said the contract had to go to Ferguson Marine. We don't care if it's the wrong company. It, the contract's going there. That, and, uh, um, and who's going to pay for all this? Well, the, the the great British taxpayer. I mean, it will be the great British taxpayer. It'll be all of us. Right. The, the the amount of money that's been wasted by the Scottish government's astronomic. Scotland's already the highest tax part of the UK. That's because all of the generosity from the London and English taxpayer has been spent, and they're busy fleecing us some more. So... Uh, Yeah, it's the taxpayer. It all comes down to that. So, uh, very quickly, the the Scotsman here uh, reports that um, McCall, who was an advisor to the Scottish government, who then set up the company that bought out Ferguson Marine and won the contract, uh, he he said um, that uh, Nicola Sturgeon had rushed the order through without proper safeguards in order to maximise publicity ahead of her first party conference as leader. It's all to do with political gain. So, Nicola's obviously coming in for some criticism over there. So what does Nicola do? Well, N- Nicola's fine. Nicola's got someone to blame it on. So she uh, blames it on disgraced Derek Mackay. Uh, Aston Mackay definitively took the decision to approve the deal. Sturgeon spokesman later said... Yes, it's not a question of throwing under the bus. It's a statement of fact that Derek Mackay was the relevant minister. Transpires, that's not true either. Um, And uh, none other than Alex Salmon confirmed that Derek Mackay was not to blame for the ferry fiasco. He was uh, unbelievably on holiday at the time. Uh, Salmon said, it's very convenient to lump everything on Derek Mackay. I know for a fact that when the key contract was signed, he was on holiday. It was another minister, his boss, who signed it. And Nicola Sturgeon obviously proved it. Um, so, it, and it gets worse because they're finding more faults with the ferries. So, as they're trying to finish them, uh, they have found um, uh, yet another blunder. Uh, they found that uh, the cables that had been installed in the ferries were too short to reach the plant and equipment to which they had to. To which they had to serve. Uh, you know, essentially there was a, a, a pile of cable wound up at the end of the run, and when they unwound it, it wasn't long enough. Um, after three weeks, 131 legacy cables have been assessed, 88% of which were found to have some sort of issues. Uh, there could be up to 939 cables to be replaced. So uh, the cost of that is not yet known. Um, now, so we've got this problem, So, but we've got a parliament, right? We've got scrutiny. We've got political scrutiny because, uh, you know, that's how our system works. It's all it's all open and transparent. So here's Edward Mountain, former MSP, uh, tweeting out. He said, I spent nearly two years as a convener, convener of the committee looking at the procurement of ferries. We never got to the bottom of who was to blame, which is why we need a public inquiry. So we see the, the Scottish system is entirely obscure. You can't find out who made any decision. There are no proper records. A lot of the stuff is done informally, and no one can be held to account, not even by the parliamentary committee tasked with doing that very thing. Um, it gets even worse. Transpires another twenty million was paid to the yard from COVID business support fund. 20,377, pounds and fifty. And here you see a nice photograph of Nicola Sturgeon doing selfies the day the ship was launched. Um we go uh, briefly to the Oban Times uh here, um, who are talking about the actual effect that the ferry problems are having. In this case, on Colin Tyree residents. Um the collentine Community Council say only a third of calls sailings, just seven return trips, were successful in February. The remote island communities with a population of 800 say that unreliability of the shared and only ferry service to mainland makes life unsustainably challenging, and with one business losing 15,000 uh, and uh, the uh, Arangur uh, Primary School pupils without heating for three days. Um, and uh, the problems go on. Um, We've got um, a, a pensioner and a, a couple was stuck in Oban and had to pay for a week's accommodation because he couldn't get home. No ferries. Hotels are losing money. Food supplies are rotting and having to be thrown away. This, this is what it's like living on the islands. Beautiful islands, Colin Tyree, but they're not being properly served. So we come to questions being asked. And finally, finally, the BBC decides to ask a few questions of the current Uh, finance minister kate forbes about the nature of these failures here maybe the minister who's now in charge can help
4: the focus must be on learning the lessons but also progressing
2: so what we're just meant to accept that a big kid did it
4: and ran away not at all well who did it then well, I think it's well documented. At Audit Scotland, uh, Audit Scotland's report. Well,
2: that, Audit Scotland say they don't have documentary evidence for the decision, the key decision to go ahead with the contract against the
4: advice of SEMAL. We've proactively published extensive material uh, that's all available publicly um, on the Scottish Government's website for anybody to look at and anybody to read. Okay, but on can the, you tell
2: me in this interview who took that decision and why?
4: I can't tell you that decision. That. Uh, point because,
2: because
4: it, you don't know well it all happened before I was in post
2: <laughs> so it all happened before before she was in post um, I suspect she does know because she didn't say I don't know um, but there we go it wasn't me um, don't, don't blame me blame someone else I, I, I'll fill in the name later on when we find out who we're going to drop in it that's political oversight that's the control it's it's a It's an example of the failure of the democratic process across the west. Um, it's a little it's a little concentrated example of it, but there is uh, a bizarre decision making uh, for political gain, for short-term political gain to get power, to get popularity um, the consequences of public money is being wasted on a vast scale and The people who actually can provide these services, the private ferry operators with the skills and abilities and know-how to do it well, they're not allowed to expand, they're not allowed to compete because it's all regulated and it's all government controlled and it must be CalMac and it must be centrally planned and it must be centrally controlled. And therefore, the the enterprising uh, in Scotland do not get a chance to expand and to succeed because it's, they're suffocated by the uh, failure of the state. So, as you look round from the ferry, uh, the Glen Sannox Ferry, uh, if, you, if you look, turn, turn round 180 degrees, you see a brand new sculpture. And it's magnificent. It's 11 metres high. It's, um, it's, I guess, stainless steel, maybe galvanised because It's probably stainless. And it's about... Uh, the shipbuilding heritage of Port Glasgow and the Clyde. And um, the, the, the fencing you see there's two metre high head is fencing. So that gives you an idea of the scale of the thing It's huge and it's brand new, just installed. Um, it took nine years to make these two sculptures and uh, the predicted cost was £250,000. The actual outturn cost, £600,000. So I think they are a fitting tribute to the current state of shipbuilding. On the Clyde,
0: David. Thank you for that uh, report. What I find fascinating is when you talk about the incompetence that's come out of the state control and the problems. This is what in the Cold War days we were pointing fingers at the Soviet Union or later the Warsaw uh, Pact itself and saying you can't you can't operate properly as a society or what you build or your military structure. Uh, because of this state control and the whole thing is incompetent. You you've just described the Soviet system operating in Scotland, to my mind. And what I find doubly interesting is when I look at the scale of of that piece of artwork, that's Soviet style artwork, that's what you would expect to find if you go to former Soviet Union states, is this very
2: that's, domineering. That's, that's an excellent yeah, that's an excellent and astute point, uh, Brian. It is exactly uh, Soviet style.
0: So uh, the Soviet is operating in this country while we point fingers at, at Russian Federation, um, saying you're up to no good. I think we need to look closer, closer to home.
1: Um, right. Well, we're we're pretty much out of time, but I do want to uh, cover this. This is uh, liberation in, in the uh, in France, of course, and uh, let's just do a quick. Uh, translation on that headline. Uh, Do we know the reason for the arrest of lawyer uh, Virginia to, uh, uh, well, I can't pronounce that, but anyway, you can see it on screen. Um, So what they're saying is here, a lawyer representing various figures in conspiracy circles uh, has been arrested in a terrorist case linked to the figure of Remy Daye, uh, involved with various representatives of the uh, vaccine skeptic movement is what they claim. Uh, she has filed co- uh, filed various complaints on behalf of associations such as Bon sens, uh, and operates in the Corona committee of the German lawyer Rainer Fulmich. Um And uh, so they say that according to Agence France Presse, uh, the lawyer is one of seven people arrested. I believe this was on Thursday last week uh, in a terrorist case uh, linked to the figure of a cons- uh, of the conspiracy circles uh, Remy Daye. So who is Remy Dae? Well, let's. Uh, Put him on screen here. Conspiracists charged over alleged French coup plot. So, uh, first of all, the BBC reporting here that uh, he was attempting to overthrow the French government. Uh, Also arrested, by the way, uh, Sylvain B, uh, a Yellow Vest author of "quotes uh, manual of peaceful insurrection" of a manual of peaceful insurrection. Uh, AFP specifies that searches were carried out during the arrests. Uh, There's been a judicial investigation. Uh, to which series of arrests would uh, would be connected was opened in May 2021 um, after the first arrest linked to the small group uh, and so on. So anyway, Remy Daye, a figure of conspiratorial circles, circles already implicated and imprisoned in the case of the kidnapping of little Mia. Uh, so here is uh, RFI talking about this former French politician Remy uh arrested over child abduction. So the kidnapped girl, according to this uh uh, report, identified only by her first name, Mia, was taken in mid-April last year from her home in eastern France, but of her grandmother, uh, her legal guard- guardian by several men employed by Mia's mother. Uh, she was found several days later in a squat in uh, Switzerland in the care of her mother, who had lost custody of her and returned to her grandmother. Uh, investigators believe the abduction may have been organized by extremists led by Daie uh, who believe that children in care are unfairly taken from their parents. Uh, shortly after his arrival in Paris, uh, he was transferred to Nancy for questioning uh, by an investigating magistrate. So, um, lots go, lots going on there, uh, Brian. But uh, first of all, we have uh, other, more activists involved in child-related cases where children have been taken from uh, parents and handed to other family members or whatever. Uh, and this is a very complex area that we can't really cover at the moment, but but uh, it was the language in Libera- Liberation that was really grabbing me because, of course, uh, it's all this language of extremism uh, and uh, anti-vax, and again, trying to associate anybody uh, challenging uh, the system uh, as being a right-wing extremist.
0: Yeah, the situation is conflated, but we know that there's been some very unpleasant Uh, I'm going to use the word attacks by the French government on medical professionals GPs um, and medical doctors in hospitals anybody daring to speak out about vaccine policy uh, daring to talk about the dangers of vaccines Uh, the French government has been coming down on increasingly an increasingly heavy way so I think that is going to continue
1: um, okay, David. Just for, finally, then, two uh, two final images.
2: Uh, yes, this is this is Plotton. Thank you very much for to the uh, uh, UK column supporter who, who who put this one up on Twitter. Uh, this is a, f- a photograph from a couple of days ago at uh, Plotton, the west coast of Scotland. Just to remind everyone how beautiful our world is and can be. Um, and uh, a final slide to finish off. Um, And it's Colombo. And he's saying, ah, one more thing. How do you explain the sudden stop in new variants? It's a good question.
1: It's a very good question. But Colombo always asks good questions. It's
0: a shame we don't have him here to do the uh, the detective work around the MHRA and the VAERS system, I think. I think we're out of time.
1: Yes. We'll have have some extra in a few minutes.
0: Yeah. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to all our audience today. Big thank you to viewers uh, tuning in from overseas. And I'm gonna remind people once again, if you want to do something to help expose what's really been happening with the vaccines, do watch the MHRA's board meeting and get the uh, viewer counter clocking up. Uh, When it reaches 50,000 views, I'm gonna predict we're gonna start to see some extraordinary things starting to happen from within the MHRA. So it's an easy thing to do. Just watch a video. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.